So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to have Dr. Paul Reeve back on the show in our final part of our conversation about his new book, Let's talk about race and priesthood. We're going to find out how deep this small book goes into the race ban. We'll also talk about some lingering justifications of the ban that some people use within the church. And we'll also talk about some of the early justifications, such as Curse of Cain, um, Joseph F. Smith's role in the race ban. And we'll even talk a little bit about President McKay and President Kimball. So you won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. Well, I can't wait for your book to come out, but um, yeah. So show show people how thick this book is. It's a tiny book, especially compared to your... <laughs> yeah. How many pages is that? Um, well, with all the notes and everything it, um, and, and the index, it's 161 pages. But in terms of just the writing, um, the last page in the last chapter is 130, page 133. Okay. So it's short. Uh, and the chapters are short too. This was also something that, you know, I kind of struggled to uh, um, adjust to. They wanted sort of short, pithy chapters, keep the reader moving. But I actually um, grew to enjoy it um, oh, really? after I got into it. Um and so, you know, some chapters are three pages, four pages long. Um, they address the issue and then we move on. Um, but, you know, I you also... You could probably read that in about an hour, I'll bet, or two hours maybe. A couple of hours. I mean, people have sat down and just just read it. I mean, I've, I'm yeah. getting texts from people, hey, I just bought this and read it in, <laughs> you know, a couple of hours. Um, I think, so Desert Book does have the audio version available, and I think... Um, it says it's like a four-hour thing if you listen to it on full speed, you know? You can um, ramp it up to double speed. And be, be done in a Are you the narrator or they get I'm, somebody else? I'm not. No, they got someone else. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, how much can you – how much history can you put in a just 130-page book? Well, um because I have a feeling your religion of a different color is much more in depth, much more detailed than this. Is that it true? absolutely is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, so you get much more in depth. Um, you know, I go into outside public perception of who Latter Day Saints were in religion of a different color, and this is there is one short chapter on that in this book, but it's largely the inside story. Religion of a different color tries to, um, you know, demonstrate the way that outsiders perceived Latter-day Saints racially in the 19th century as not white enough. And you don't get the full extent of that in this. Um, this is largely the inside story of moving away from uh, their own black Latter-day Saint converts towards whiteness um, and sort of the way that the racial restrictions take on a life of their own across the course of the 19th century. So, yeah, I have to be really kind of selective in the examples that I choose in Deseret Books, you know, 
basically said, yeah, you, uh, I mean, the manuscript that I turned in, they said, you got to cut 10,000 words, right? <laughs> to, to fit their format. How many, how many words is that? Do you know? I can't remember like what it finally came in at, but, um, I had to cut 10,000 from what I originally submitted. And, you know, I said, you're already asking me to submit something that's so short. And then you're asking me to cut 10,000. Really what they said was, um, you know, cut out the multiple examples in each chapter. So, you know, just pick an example, pick an example that illustrates the bigger point. And, you know, I struggled with that at first, but I actually like how it, um, it turned out because it gives you an example to sink your teeth into. Um, and it illustrates the bigger point of the chapter. And some chapters do include, you know, more than one black Latter day saint story. But that's the other thing that I try to do in this book is, um, draw upon Century of Black Mormons. So um, the racial story, even in religion of a different color, is largely told from the perspective of the white leaders who are making these racial decisions. And most of the way that the story has been told has just been, you know, when did the racial restrictions come into place? You know, how do they develop over time? And that's true in religion of a different color. But what... Um, I, I try to do here is to demonstrate how those policies actually impacted Black Latter-day Saints in the pews. Which is a story not told near enough. Exactly. And um, Century of Black Mormons made that possible so that I could draw upon um, biographies from the database and demonstrate, hey, here's how this policy that's being implemented actually impacted Black Latter-day Saints. And so... Um, I try to include those um, experiences so that you actually get a sense of these have these policies have real real world consequences. Yeah. Okay. Um, look, look, I kind of feel like I'm a, I, I'm smarter than the average bear <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to this issue, especially. It's one of my favorite issues. I may not be my listeners' issue, but I love this issue. <laughs> Um, so let me just ask you about some people that I'm familiar with and see if those stories are in the book. Because I, it's already sold out. I haven't been able to get a copy. <laughs> like, selling like hotcakes, apparently. So um, do you talk about Black Pete? Um, I mentioned him as the first black uh, okay. Latter-day Saint, yes. Elijah Abel? Yes. Warren McCary? Yes. Oh, you do? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. he's kind of a, he's the problem. Between... Between him and the Enoch Lewis's mixed race child, I believe that was really what caused Brigham Young to reconsider. I think you're right. I okay. think you're right. And so um, deal with both of those experiences here as sort of pivotal in turning Brigham Young's perspective. So he's dealing with um, two cases of interracial marriages and – um, he then, by the end of, um, well, on December 3rd, 1847, so the end of 1847, after he's come to the Salt Lake Valley and then gone back to Winter Quarters, he's speaking out stridently against race mixing, and it seems to account for his change of direction on race and racial pre-subordination. Because prior to that, we've got a fine elder, Q. Locker Lewis, That's in right. Lowell, Massachusetts. Exactly. And he was very favorable. And then those two, wasn't there a third one? I swear there was a third issue. Oh, maybe, well, 
I think it was Joseph Balls. Didn't he kind of get involved in polygamy with William Smith? But yeah, he if did. he passed for white, I guess yeah. that wouldn't have been a race no, issue it, per se. It doesn't seem to be a factor in what's going on in 1847. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, you probably don't get into Joseph Ball. Um, no, no. You did talk about uh, the 1852 legislature, apparently, because yes. that was the big issue in, in writing the book, right? Correct. And yes. so how much detail can you get into that in just such a small book? You know, not a lot of detail, but um, do quote Brigham Young, do quote Orson Pratt. You know, they're in a debate over um, the laws that will govern uh, white enslavers who have brought their black enslaved people to Utah Territory. And that produces, you know, um, some of Brigham Young's most strident um, uh, sentiments about racial priesthood ordination, but also slavery in the 19th century. And Orson Pratt is advocating for black male voting rights. And that helps us to account, uh, account for some of the things that Brigham Young says um, in that 5th of February speech. Uh, because he says we just as well give mules the right to vote here as Negroes and Indians. And he's pushing back against Orson Pratt, who is advocating for black men being able to vote. And I will just remind people um, of our previous interview. I have one titled Becoming a Fanboy of Orson Pratt. (laughs) (laughs) I still think it's cool that Orson Pratt was advocating for black voting rights in 1852. So It is cool. And he, he sticks to his convictions. Um, and we um, have an, uh, another new speech that will be in um, the next book. But also I just briefly quote it in this book. Um, uh, Orson Pratt in 1856 gives another strident anti-slavery speech oh. um, wherein he says, we have no proof that Africans are descendants of old Cain. Oh, really? And that's the only justification Brigham Young ever gives for the racial restriction is curse of Cain, and um, Orson Pratt doesn't buy it. He says there is no proof, and hopefully we all know in 2023 Orson (laughs) Pratt is correct. Um, Black people are not (laughs) descendants of Cain, but that was a longstanding kind of um, uh, justification for uh, where black skin came from, calling black people as cursed, and Brigham Young is – bringing that into the faith with him and giving it theological weight in this case. Well, see, that flies in the face of biblical literalism, right? Doesn't it? Right. Mm -hmm. And I know quite a few biblical literalists in my ward. Yeah. (laughs) So I think there are a lot of people that still would believe that Africans come from Cain. Right. Yeah, no. And and if you read uh, the book of Genesis, I mean, it doesn't actually say that. Um, it was a biblical exegesis or a bi- biblical way of interpreting. So some early scribes suggested that um, the mark that God put on Cain was black skin, but the Bible doesn't say that, um, that the curse is somehow um, racial. The Bible doesn't say that. It was just standard interpretations. And then you throw in the curse of Ham or Canaan, and that was justification for enslavement. And they said, well, the Bi- Bible um, supports slavery. Support slavery. The, the Israelites were slaves for a long time. Right. So um, they're using those standard justifications um, to, in Brigham Young's case, then um, suggest that there is a racial priesthood curse. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um I'm trying to remember the next big issue to me. I'm trying to, is there anything between say 1852 and 
where you probably have the death of Elijah Abel. That was probably a big deal, right? Do you talk about that in there? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. So um, just tracing how the racial restrictions develop over time and Elijah Abel's application in 1879 um, to be sealed to his wife and to receive his endowment. Um, so just the indication that as late as 1879, the racial restrictions are not firmly or unambiguously in place because John Taylor doesn't know what to do with a black priesthood holder who received his Washington anointing rituals in Kirtland, wasn't in Nauvoo when the endowment was introduced, now is in Utah, his wife has passed away, he wants to be sealed to her and have his endowment receive the rest of his temple rituals. And who was, who? you told me earlier, who was 1871 that received the priesthood? His son, um, his son. Moroni. Moroni. But Moroni. Moroni was on his deathbed. Correct. But for Elijah Abel, right? Like, well, uh, you know. You gave it to my son. Who knows what he even understands about the racial restrictions, right? right? Because, you know, his son has received ordination. He's uh, ordained. He maintains this whole time that Joseph Smith sanctioned his priesthood. Um, and so his application in 1879 produces an investigation, and Joseph F. Smith is sent to interview him and comes back and reports that, hey, you know, he's got his certificate dates. Uh, he knows who gave him his Washington anointing rituals in Kirtland. He's got all the information. He claims that Joseph Smith promised him, uh, you know, that his priesthood would give him the blessings uh, of the gospel. And you know, reports all of this. And, and John Taylor um, uh, allows his priesthood to stand, but doesn't allow him temple admission and basically says, well, maybe it's like some of the early things, some of the things done in the early days of the church. Um, and we didn't know what was going on. We didn't we know what was going on. And then we sort of developed more refined understanding. And so in his estimation, Brigham Young was... Uh, correct, and Joseph Smith was the one that made the mistake in ordaining black men to the priesthood, and Brigham Young is correct in terms of re restricting them from the priesthood. That's what John Taylor said. Well, that's that's really what he's saying, right? Okay. Um, I mean, that's he's he's saying in the early days of the church, maybe we did things wrong, and then we had greater understanding. So the greater understanding is Brigham Young <laughs> is the restriction, instead of <sighs> suggesting that Brigham Young got it wrong and Joseph Smith got it right. Well, John Taylor said some pretty terrible things about blacks, right? He did. How, how much do you cover that in there? Yeah, I, it's not in here. It's in religion of a different color. But okay. but but John Taylor um, says they're, they're descendants of Satan. Um, and so he has his own um, kind of understanding as well. Um, but he prevents Elijah Abel um, from receiving his temple admission. But um, in 1883, Elijah Abel goes on a third mission for the church and Joseph F. Smith sets him apart, sends him to Ohio. He's 75 years old. He returns the following year and dies within two weeks um, as a faithful black priesthood holder. Mm -hmm. You probably talk about Jane James' attempt to get her temple blessings. I do, yeah. Uh, can you share that really briefly? Yeah, I mean, uh, she's just appealing for her temple um, admission. She that was due to Elijah's death, right? Yeah, eighteen eighty four. She picks up where Elijah Abel leaves off, basically, and she doesn't relent until she passes away in nineteen oh eight. Um, is repeatedly told no. She is given limited use recommends for the Salt Lake Temple, for the Logan Temple to perform baptisms for the dead. She had also participated in baptisms for the dead in the Endowment House in 1875, along with several other Black Latter-day Saints. 
um, but denied um, the crowning uh, temple rituals. So they could faith. get in the basement of the temple, but that was it, basically. That's it, yeah. Well, that's terrible yeah. to say, but... Well, and, and Jane and her brother Isaac, um, he joins her in Salt Lake and is rebaptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1893, and they then are seen as uh, prominent pioneer couples, and they're given cushioned seats in the tabernacle. So prominent seats in the tabernacle, but barred from the temple. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's crazy. Um, I'm trying to think, is there anything else big? I guess Jane Manning's death is in 1908. To me, the next big uh, step in the priesthood battle is, is President McKay. Is there anything in between... Jane and President McKay? Yeah, I mean, I, I make the case that Joseph S. Smith is really the one responsible for solidifying the restrictions in place um, because um, in 1908, he basically argues that Elijah Abel's priesthood was declared null and void by Joseph Smith himself. And so... Which wasn't true. It's not true, no. But he makes that claim, and so that becomes the new memory in the 20th century. The restrictions were always in place... God put them in place. They were there from the beginning. Man can't do anything about it. It all goes back to Joseph. It goes back to Joseph. It's um, even traces through the uh, foggy mists of time into the eternities, right? And that becomes the memory for the 20th century. Um, and th the leadership believes that. Um, and it becomes entrenched. And so that helps us to account for why it takes so long to unravel. Okay. So the next big thing is probably when President McKay becomes a church president and there's an issue in South Africa. Is that in the book? Um, I don't deal with his trip to South Africa, but I do talk about the lack of consensus um, in the McKay period where you have people like Hubie Brown advocating for change and people like Harold B. Lee um, entrenching around the restrictions. So this is more the 1960s? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, once again, it's it's broad brush strokes. Right. Um, and, you know. Because you can't, you can't get fine detail in 130 <laughs> pages. You can't. Um, so, you know, I try to give life to the story, but um, also not the fine detail. And, and Matt Harris, I think, will fill us in on all of the detail in, in <laughs> his volume. Can't wait for that book. Yeah. That's coming out. So. Um, you know, it it really articulates the McKay administration as sort of a lack of consensus um, with um, some people advocating for change and other people retrenching um, behind the racial restrictions. Um, talk about um, Bruce R. McConkie and Mormon doctrine, um, Marky Peterson's talk in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education at BYU sort of some in the leadership entrenching around segregation. Um, and so it helps us to understand how it gets perpetuated forward. Um, and then, you know, Spencer W. Kimball um, seems um, intent on um, building consensus and um, laying the groundwork for the 1978 revelation. Um, and once again, it's another brief chapter. And I actually do you talk about the Brazil Temple. I do. Yeah. Is do you agree with Matt that that was the f first thing that President Kimball did to get rid of the ban? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I think Matt's the expert on that. I think it's a significant factor in in unraveling. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, and I'll leave it to Matt to kind of give us the full details on that. Once again, it's short here, but um, actually quote, I think it's um, Marion G. Romney who says, look, um, the temple in Brazil uh, was a significant factor here, um, you know, trying to figure out racial identity in a mixed racial co- uh, country is next to impossible. And uh, we're building a temple there. And he articulates that. And so I, I quote him briefly. Hmm. Um, and he's not one we usually associate with racial progress or something. Yeah, no, and, and it's not really. I mean, he's just basically saying it's a it's a significant factor in why the revelation came about. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just uh, quoting that. Um, but the 78 revelation chapter is really kind of framed by a black woman, um, Frida Lucretia McGee Ballou. Um, I wanted readers to understand that it's not just priesthood, but black women were barred from temple admission. Right. And she was baptized in 1909 in a creek outside of Tylertown, Mississippi. And in July of 1978, she's traveled a thousand miles to the Washington DC temple to be sealed to her uh, husband who has predeceased her. Um, And she's waited 69 years to get into a Latter-day Saint temple. And so um, I wanted readers to sort of appreciate uh, the fact that this impacted, how this impacted real life people. And I think she's a profound example, someone who had remained faithful for 69 years before she was allowed into the LDS temple. Wow. That's too long. Yeah. <laughs> wish it had never happened. I still wish. Yeah. I, you know, I look at places like the community of Christ. I mean, it's not that they've got a stellar racial record either, but they never had a ban, at right. least, you know, Strangites never had a ban. Right. You know, Vickertonites as far, I think they had an apostle in the early 1900s that was black. And so it didn't have to be this way. I, I hate it when I hear people say that, well, you know, it was up to God and 1978 was just the magical year, you know. Yeah. It doesn't, I mean, how do you respond to people when, when they say those kinds of things? Well, um, so the last part of the book, uh, I mean, Deseret Book asked me to address, you know, some of the lingering justifications. And so I do deal with uh, that and just try to unravel some of those justifications. Um, you know, um, I start out the book by simply quoting um, Joseph Smith claims five revelations uh, that stipulate that this gospel is to be preached unto every creature. Um, that leaves no one out. Right. <laughs> There's no like the divine timeline is every creature um, and he's receiving those revelations as early as 1831 and they keep getting repeated. Um, This gospel is to be preached unto every creature Uh, that leaves no one out. There's no, you know, um, this is just God's timing. God's timing was um, this is the last dispensation and everyone is included. And the revelation that Joseph Smith claims um, indicate that. And, Uh, Joseph Smith says uh, that Jesus says to him twice in 1831, um, all flesh is mine and I am no respecter of persons. Um, So you have to take those revelations seriously. Um, It's it's not, um, you know, somehow 1978. um, I see, and the case that I make in the book is 1978 returns – the church to its universal it's roots. a restoration. It's a restoration. Yeah, it is um, back to the original universalism. So the book, the structure of the book is is just structured in three phases. 
um, open priesthood in temples, segregated priesthood in temples, and then a return in 1978 to the original universalism. Um, and that's the exact structure. And so if readers take nothing away, else away, um, I hope um, that they appreciate the evidence that the racial restrictions were not in place from the beginning. And the evidence is included in the structure of the book is, is um, st structured that way to illustrate that. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. All right. Um, anything else you want to share on, on this? Um, Buy multiple copies and give them to your friends. <laughs> of course, I'd be happy about that. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I hope, I hope readers um, appreciate it and, um, you know, appreciate the, the, the fact that that Desert Book was willing to publish it. And um, I think it's open and honest. It's an open and honest retelling, obviously short, right? So it's not going to include everything. Um, but it's a your other books for that, right? Right, two books, right? Yeah, and the Matt's one before, book. And, yeah, and Matt's too. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's it's um, aimed at being accessible to the average Latter Day Saint. Yeah, I, let me ask you this: um, if somebody, if a church member, especially, said that the ban was a racist, how would you react to that? If the ban was was or if they said I think that the, the priesthood ban was racist um, well I'm not sure what you're saying <laughs> well I because I, there there's an issue I've talked with with different people uh -huh. um, uh, honestly I, I believe that the ban was was racist um, I've had other people that say no it wasn't racist God you know, for whatever reason, God only knows. It's 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 not racist. This is God's plan. I see. How would how would you respond? I guess to respond to both of those. Yeah, yeah. Issues. Well, I mean, um, I I would ask them to engage with the evidence, right? And um, I hope this volume lays out the evidence. Um, so, for example, um, I use Frida Lucretia McGee Ballou in that 1978 Revelation chapter. She can answer the temple recommend questions exactly the same as a white person before June of 1978. The white person be admitted to the temple and Frida denied. Not based on worthiness because she's answering the questions the same, based on race. That's racism. Uh, so I'm not sure that um, people have fully come to terms with that. Um, and I hope that by, you know, um, illustrating sort of how these policies impacted the lives of real people, that it might prompt people to think more um, deeply about that. So, you know, um, if you are making determinations based on a person's race, that's racism. If you're um, not making determinations based on their answer to temple recommend questions. So you can answer the temple recommend questions exactly the same, right? But you're barred because of your race, then that's racism. Okay. We're not judging people by the content of their character, but by the color of their skin. Right. Or, or by, um, you know, their devotion to God. And President um, Russell M. Nelson has actually articulated that. Um, he has said in a recent speech, right, that um, let me be clear. We are not judged based on our skin color. We are judged based on our devotion to God and his commandments. 
the racial restrictions worked exactly the opposite. President Nelson taught eternal truths. The racial restrictions violated those truths. Very good. And then the last question I wanted to ask you, um, you had mentioned at that, that written vision um, meeting that uh, they wanted you to use the word I. <laughs> I believe, I, I, I. And I know that was hard for you. Um, and it seems like Deseret Book also were like, these are the opinions of Paul Reeve. These are not official church. Um, does that make it <laughs> easy for shall we say, more conservative members to write off the book and say, who cares what Paul Reeves thinks? You know, I'm not racist. I, <laughs> I, you know, I think the band came from God. Um, well, how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, everyone's going to have to make up their minds for themselves, but I hope it's based on evidence, and I think this book uh, actually offers them the evidence. Uh, so you're going to have to argue against the evidence. Um, and yeah, so Deseret Book asked me to, uh, you know, make it clear that I'm speaking for myself, right? Not um, for the church. And I would never pretend Not to speak. Not for Deseret Book. Right. I would never pretend to speak for the church. Um, so, you know, that's including I statements, right? Like these are things that I believe to be true. Um, but I also believe that they're grounded in evidence. Okay. So you you wouldn't have a problem I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but for people who just say, "Well, that's Paul's belief," I don't, I don't have to believe that. Do you, I mean, how would you respond? Well, um, like I said, grounded <laughs> on evidence. <laughs> um, certainly, people don't have to believe uh, anything that I say, right? That's that's up to them. But um, I hope they're willing to engage with the evidence, and this is documented. Um, you know, and new evidence has come to light, even since religion of a different color. Uh, so, I know we've talked about it today. Right, <laughs> it's been amazing. So, stuff. so I'm I'm hoping that they're willing to engage with that and they make their determination based on the evidence. Right? Yeah. And so, final question: Tell us about your upcoming book and when do you think it'll be out? Do you have a name for it yet? Yeah, it's um, it's called um, "This Abominable Slavery," mm -hmm. um, and it will just lay out um, the 1852 legislative session. Christopher Rich and LaJean Carruth are my co-authors for that. Um, we tell the story of uh, um, uh, the Black Servant Code as well as the Native American Indenture Bill that were passed by the 1852 Territorial Legislature um, and lay out that narrative story to kind of talk uh, to, to lay out indigenous as well as African-American slavery in Utah Territory in the 19th century. And I will tell everybody I've been waiting for at least six years since I knew about this book. <laughs> it's been a long time. And we will also make all of those speeches that were newly transcribed, we'll make them publicly available. And I'll become even a bigger fanboy of Orson Pratt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, um, I'm hoping, um, you know, within the next year. Okay. Yeah. Cool, cool. Wow. Yep. We will definitely love to have you back on here, Paul. Sounds great. <laughs> all right. Thanks again for being here on Gospel Tangents. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank mm -hmm. you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Paul Reeve from the University of Utah and author of Let's Talk About Race and Priesthood. So, Paul, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Can't wait till your next book comes out. We got to do these interviews more than every other six years. So uh, <laughs> let's let's get together for that. In our next conversation, I'm going to introduce a little tour of independence and we're going to meet a famous governor's residence. 
I, I, I confess that it made me happy to know that the Boggs home was torn down. <laughs> it's, it's just kind of an empty field or empty hill here now. Um, but the, so we're looking, you can see there, there where the plaque is, but that's what they think it, it looked like. Um, of course, Governor Boggs issued the uh, 1838 extermination order. Um, and uh, I didn't realize, of course, when he was governor, how deep his roots were to independence. And so, uh, and this is also the house where uh, Porter Rockwell was accused of the assassination attempt of Governor Box. Thanks for listening to Gospel Tangents. If you'd like to support me, please subscribe at gospeltangents.com or on patreon.com slash gospeltangents, or you can watch entire videos at youtube.com slash gospeltangents. I really can't do this without your support. I'd love to do it full time, and I need a lot more people that are willing to, to help me out. So I'd really appreciate that. So thanks again for listening, and don't forget to check out some of our other videos. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.